6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, The Prehistorical Record. You notice that we're talking about men in general and daughters in general. It said men began to multiply and daughters were born into them. It's not subs there's no subset here, it's the men in general. There's this strange term, sons of God, that I want to focus on. That's the way it's translated. The term in the Hebrew is B'nai HaElohim, and that term is always used in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, of a direct creation of God, therefore it's of angels. Adam was a direct creation of God. The angels were a direct creation of God. We need to understand that term, sons of God, Benai Elohim. It in the Greek, when the Hebrews, three centuries before Christ's ministry, translated this into Greek, they used the word in the Greek for angels. In the Old Testament, you'll find it in Job several times. In the New Testament, you'll find the same concept in Luke 20, verse 36. There's a book called the Book of Enoch. It's not part of the Bible. It's not considered inspired, but it's a very, very uh, uh, widely venerated book in, from about the 2nd century B.C. to the 2nd century A.D. It's not biblical. It's not inspired. But it is useful for vocabulary and grammar. And it clearly identifies these terms as angels. Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, the, trans the translation of the o uh, Hebrew Old Testament into Greek that occurred three centuries before Christ, it translates it that way. The daughters of men phrase is Benoth Adam, is daughters of Adam. Not the daughters of Seth or Cain, specifically daughters of Adam in general. So we have apparently some strange goings on here. According to the text, some fallen angels came down with the intent of creating hybrids. When you get to verse 4, it says there were Nephilim in the earth in those days and also after that. When the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and bare children to them, the same became the mighty men which were of old men of renown. Now if you take the text what it says, this is getting pretty spooky. The word Nephilim, of course, is the key term here. It's translated giants in your English Bible. The word Nephilim means the fallen ones. It comes from the Hebrew verb nephal, to fall or be cast down, to fall away or desert. These were hybrids. Don't confuse them with the fallen angels. They're the offspring of the combination. And that led to what called the Hagibarim, the mighty men, the mighty ones. In the Septuagint, the word is gigantis, which means earthborn, but it's translated giants. They happen to be giants, but that's not what the word means. It means earthborn, and from gigas, meaning earthborn. Now, 
When you get down to verse 9 of chapter 6, there's another interesting insight. It says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. The word perfect in his generations is a strange Hebrew word. It's tamim. It means without blemish, healthful, without spot, unimpaired. It's a term that's used of physical blemishes. And what this is saying is that Noah's genealogy, his, his family tree, was unblemished. It wasn't contaminated with these strange things going on. It may not, he may not have been the only one that was uncontaminated, but the main point is he, his genealogy was unblemished. Now this whole weird idea that I'm suggesting here is confirmed in the New Testament. When you get to our friend Jude again, the next to the last book, Jude talks about this, is that the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains, under darkness, unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So we're talking about angels that left their habitation, I'm going to come back to that word later, and, going, and they were going after strange flesh. This is pretty strange stuff. Also, Second Peter, Peter's second letter, he says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus, and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, and he goes on. So he not only mentions the same event, he talks, it was the time of Noah. He uses the term Tartarus. It's translated hell in your Bible, but that's just a translational issue. The word Tartarus doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament, so you sort of stumble at what, what does that word really mean? Well, it's a term that widely used in the Greek for the dark abode of woe. It's considered the pit of darkness in the unseen world. In Homer's Iliad, it's described as far below Hades as the earth is below heaven. So where is Tartarus? I don't know, but I know I don't want to go there. Okay? It may be a very special subset of, of what we call Hades. What's interesting about this strange view that I'm presenting to you from Genesis chapter 6, you'll find this view embodied in the ancient legends of every ancient culture. If you've studied Greek mythology, they speak of the tradition of the Titans. These were part terrestrial, part celestial. Um, they rebelled against their father Uranus, according to their mythology. They were defeated by Zeus and condemned to where? To Tartarus. That's where that term comes from. You'll find these ancient legends in Assyria, Egypt, Incas, the Mayans, the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, in Persia, Greece, India, Bolivia, the South Sea Island, even the Sioux Indians in America, all have these legends of these strange star people coming down, cohabiting with women, and producing offspring. When you talk about Atlas or Hercules, you're talking about what would be called in the Hebrew Nephilim, the hybrid offspring of, the, of gods and uh, uh, conversing with men, the demigods, if you will. Now, what's taught in most seminaries is what's called the lines of Seth view. They take this difficult passage of Genesis 6, and they say, well, the sons of God refers to the leadership of the line of Seth. These were the good guys. 
And that what they shouldn't have done is they, the daughters of Adam really refers to daughters of Cain. And the, the, the fallacy here, the, the problem is that the Sephites shouldn't have mixed with the daughters of Cain. And uh, the, their sin then was a, a failure to maintain separation, is what's commonly taught. And it doesn't explain what the unnatural offspring were, the Nephilim, but that's the view that they call the line of Seth. Where did this view come from? In the 5th century, 5th century, 500 years after the New Testament period, Celsus and Julian, the apostate, used the traditional belief of these, the, what I'll call the angel view of Genesis 6. They used that to attack Christianity. They said it was too spooky. And Julius Africanus resorted to the Sethite theory as a more comfortable ground. Cyril of Alexander used it to repudiate the orthodox position. And Augustine comes along, who did many good things. But he did make, he also left us with some problems. He embraced the Sethite theory, and it became the primary view right through the Middle Ages, and thus is in the foundation of most of our denominations. Not just the Catholics, but the Protestants also. You'll find the, the seminaries still teach the Sethite view. What makes many uh, graduates upset is they later discover about the angel view, and they also do their homework and discover it's the only one you can really defend. The Sethite view crumbles, and they're upset, not because if they had presented both views, it'd be different. But many seminaries don't even present in any, in, in any solid way the angel view. The text itself, the Son of God is never used of believers in the Old Testament. That's a, a twist. Seth was not God. Cain was not Adam. That's what you have to assume if you're going to accept the Sethite translations. And there's no mentions of daughters of Elohim. There's just daughters of men. So you know, there's, there's, there's all kinds of problems. And the grammar is also ignored. But the separation that they say is a sin is nonsense because the lines of separation come five chapters later. It's Isaac that's told to keep himself separate and so forth. Ishmael didn't. didn't wasn't told to. But in any case, in Genesis 6, it says all flesh was corrupted. That's why the flood came. That includes the line of Seth. The line of Seth was not the good guys. See, only Enoch, of course, because he was removed before the flood, and Noah's eight, the eight in the ark, uh, were spared. And incidentally, the, the, the uh, uh, angels took wives whom they chose. It sounds like it was, there was no... There was no uh, uh, courtship here. They just took what they wanted. And why did the Sethites perish in the flood if they're the good guys? By the way, something else, they tried, the seminaries sometimes try to present the lines of Seth as the good guys, the line of Cain, the bad guys. Cain killed his brother and he repented of it. And if you look at his genealogy, the genealogy of his kids, the name of God is in the name of his kids. Enosh, which is Seth's son, is the guy through whom uh, defiance of God was initiated. Many people miss that because there's a translational problem in the English uh, translation. Because in Genesis 4.26, then men began, in the times of Enosh, that's when men began to profane the name of the Lord. And in the, in the, in the competent rabbinical sources, that's pretty clear. So, and none of these uh, other theories explain why were the offspring of the sons of God and uh, daughters of men supernaturally weird, different, Nephilim, the fallen ones. You know, when, when believers and unbelievers have children, they may be monsters, but they may not be monstrous. In other words, there isn't anything genetically uh, involved there. 
There's also no women of renown. The, the, the whole thing falls apart. And so anyway, the angel view is a traditional rabbinical view. The book of Enoch, as I mentioned before, also uh, amplifies that. The testimony of the 12 patriarchs. These are not biblical, not inspired, but they all testify the fact that the rabbinical view, centuries before Christ's ministry, this was the traditional understanding of that passage. Josephus clearly understands it that way. The Septuagint translation, three centuries before Christ's birth, sees it that way. The early church fathers, Philo of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and on and on and on. Modern scholarship. G.H. Pember popularized this many years ago, but DeHaan, McIntosh, Dillich, Gabelin, Arthur W. Pink, Donald Gray Barnhouse, Henry Morris, Merrill Unger, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Hal Lindsey, Chuck Smith, other modern conservative scholars see it this way too. The Sethite view that's commonly understood by most people is unscriptural. The text itself has to be distorted. The inferred separation is contrived. The inferred godliness of the Sethites is unscriptural. The inferred Canaanite subset of the Adamites is imputed to the text. The unnatural offspring is not dealt with. The New Testament uh, confirms this angel view. But I'll tell you the real reason I, I've spent so much time on this in our quick summary. You will not understand much of the Old Testament history and the prophecies unless you understand the, what I'll call the angel view of Genesis 6. There are all kinds of passages we're going to encounter that will make no sense unless you really understand what happened in Genesis 6. And there's a phrase in there also after that that happened later also again. There are Nephilim, fallen ones, after the flood. Because Genesis 6 says, and also after that. When Joshua goes, gets into the land of Canaan, later in the book of Joshua, there are at least four tribes that he is instructed to wipe out every man, woman, and child. And when you read that as a New Testament reader, it's shocking. Well, what do you do with that? Because you don't understand. The problem is a gene pool. It's the same thing, problem that you had in Genesis 6. The Rephaim, the Emim, the Horim, and Zamzumim are tribes that they, are, they were instructed to wipe out. When God told Abraham that 400 years from now your people are going to come back to this land, etc., etc., that gave Satan four centuries to lay down a minefield. We'll get to that shortly. In, the, in Numbers 13, you, there's Arba and Anak and his seven sons. The Anakim are encountered. There are giants in the land. Og is the king of Bashan in the land of the giants in Deuteronomy 3 and Joshua. And we're going to encounter all these later. Goliath had four brothers. That's why David, when he crossed the brook, took five stones in his pocket. Not just for Goliath. He's ready for, all, for his four brothers all, all at the same time. So these are Rephaim. See, Satan, you can read the whole Bible from the point of view of Satan's attempt to thwart God's plan. He corrupted Adam's line in Genesis 6. Satan's attempt to try to thwart the plan of redemption. Uh, Abraham's seed, when God calls Abraham, that now allows Satan to focus attack on Abraham's seed. The famine in Genesis 15 and elsewhere. The destruction of the male line in, in Exodus 1. When Pharaoh pursues the Israel nation going through the Red Sea to wipe them out. These are all attempts to wipe out God's plan. The population of Canaan is what uh, these uh, Raphaim were planted in, and that's what Joshua had to deal with.
When God reveals that he's going to make his plan of redemption through the line of David, it allows Satan to focus his attack on David's line. And we find again and again plots where the, the royal line is wiped out, all but one. Uh, they try to kill all the brothers off, but then a, a servant will hide one baby and so forth. The, the line is always protected. Athaliah kills all, but except Joash escapes, and Hezekiah is assaulted, and so forth. When you get to the book of Esther, it's late in the Persian period. Haman's attempt, the whole thing is Satan's plot to wipe out all the Jews in Persia. In fact, the Persian ruled the world at that time, so all, that, was, that was the attempt. And of course, always thwarted by God. When you get to the New Testament, same thing. Joseph fears that, about Mary, Mary being pregnant and so forth. And God, uh, again, uh, he, uh, he, that, was, that was punishable by death. And he was fearful for her until you know, God intervenes, of course. Herod's attempts to kill the babies. At what we celebrate Christmas time, the, the, the Magi and all of that. Uh, and when, you get to the, when Jesus goes to, uh, opens his ministry at Nazareth, they try to throw him off a cliff. During his ministry, there are two storms at sea, and those storms are not natural storms. They're, they're the fishermen that were raised on those lakes, that, made, that were professionals in professional partnership, uh, were terrified. These are unusual storms. That's why Jesus rebuked the sea. There's something more than just weather involved here. And of course, the ultimate thing is the cross itself. We'll deal with that when we get there. But it's interesting, Satan is not through. The summary of all of this, by the way, is in Revelation 12. Profiled for you in Revelation 12. We'll deal with it when we get there. But Satan's not through. He's still at it. He's still trying to thwart God's plan. But as we go through this stuff, you need to think a little bit about the nature of angels. What do we know about angels? Well, first of all, they always appear in human form. Forget the artwork that you've seen in museums. They, the angels appear in human form. They're often mistaken for people, for men. At Sodom and Gomorrah, there was angels dealing there. We're going to deal with that here shortly. At the resurrection and at the ascension, they're always in pairs. They're there. They spoke to people. They took men by the hand. They ate meals. We're told that many of us have entertained angels unawares. Angels are capable of physical combat. The Passover in Egypt, the killing of each firstborn, was done by an angel of death. One angel, after dinner one night, slaughters 185,000 Syrian troops. You don't mess with angels. Now, we do know that they don't marry in heaven. Angels that in heaven that are not fallen don't marry, because marrying is a reproductive thing, and angels don't reproduce. They're immortal in the first place. But don't presume that an angel that's fallen, that's up to mischief, has a limitation of technology. And uh, we'll, we'll get to that shortly. I want you to be sensitive, though, that angels, fallen angels and demons apparently are different. And most people are not sensitive to this. Angels are formidable creatures. Demons that we encounter primarily in the New Testament always seem to be powerless except to the extent they can indwell a person. And they need permission to do that. Either the person's permission by being foolish or uh, some other way. So demons always seem to seek embodiment. We learn a great deal about that in the New Testament. Be, be sensitive to the fact that they could be very different. Now, can angels have sex? A lot of people have trouble with the view I'm presenting. See, Jesus said, for in the resurrection, speaking of believers, 
in the resurrection they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. He's talking about not fallen angels, the angels that are faithful to God, and that they don't marry because they don't reproduce. And when you and I are in heaven in our resurrection bodies, we won't be reproducing either. That reproduction is a process that's appropriate to a mortal being. We won't be mortal beings anymore, neither are angels. That's what this really means. It doesn't put a constraint on the technology available to an angel bent on mischief. The word habitation I want to talk about, many people miss this, in the Greek it's Oketerian, it's in the New Testament, it refers to the body as a dwelling place of the spirit in a very special way. It's only used twice in the Bible. It's in used in Jude 6, it's, it, well it's, it's, it's used in 2 Corinthians 5 too, where it alludes to the heavenly body that you and I as believers long to be clothed with. That's the, what 2 Corinthians 5.2 deals with. The same term is a term used in Jude 6, from which the angels disrobed. So that's a technical term deserving some study. And uh, the angels which kept not the first estate, but left their own habitation. There's that word, left their body they had. He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness into the judgment of the great day, and even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, etc. So that word habitation again is Oketarian that I mentioned. And in first, Second Corinthians 5, 1 and 2 it says, For we know that if our, if our earthly house of this tabernacle, meaning our bodies, were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. That word house there again is Ogaterian. So that which houses us. See, the real you is not physical. You're, you're temporally resident in a body. The real you, call it soul, spirit, give it what vocabulary you like, is software, not hardware, and is eternal, whether you're saved or not. We'll talk about that later. But okay, so... All this leads up, of course, to underscore what we looked at last time when God declares war on Satan. He says, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So there's two seeds. There's this whole biblical thing is a conflict between two seeds. The seed of the woman, which is the title of Jesus Christ, and the seed of the serpent, which we'll see is the red dragon, Satan, the coming world leader, the false prophet, really a trilogy of personages that we'll see develop as we go further on. And these same forces are behind world powers today. And we get a great lesson in that when we get to Daniel chapter 10. But let's get back to the flood of Noah. A lot of talk about the flood. The ark... Is, people say there wasn't room in all the ark for all the species. The guy that says that, number, there's two things he doesn't know. He doesn't know how big the ark was, and he doesn't know how many species are involved. So it's, but you come to the conclusion very quick, well, couldn't have fit. Well, wait a minute, let's talk about it a little bit. The ark was 300 cubits long and 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. That turns out to be a very big box. Very big box. If we assume that a cubit, which is classically from the elbow to the finger, fingertip, if we assume it's about 18 inches, 
that would make this thing about 450 feet long, 70 feet wide, and 45 feet high. It would have a displacement then of approximately 24,000 tons, 1.4 million cubic feet, or roughly equivalent to over 500 railroad cars. That's a lot of railroad cars. I saw recently some people made a, a model of this to scale, to HO scale. And it's, I forget, it must have been eight, ten feet long. And you put a HO, it's HO scale, put a train by side. It's shocking to realize how big this thing actually is. But it's worse than that. That's the calculation that most people use because they use a cubit of 18 inches. And by the way, you could put in that 125,000 sheep and probably room for about 18,000 species, according to some anthropological experts. But let's assume that that cubit could be as big as 25 inches. There's arguments that it could be, the, the length of a cubit is debated among some scholars for a number of reasons. If it's 25 inches, you're talking 625 feet long, 104 feet wide, 63 feet high. You're talking 65,000 tons. That displaces more than the Wisconsin and the Missouri battleships, by the way. 4 million cubic feet, 1,400 railroad cars in size. And realize that the average size of an animal is small. There's a few big ones. You might get babies for that. But the point is animals are not that large. And you're talking about 340,000 sheep, for example, in 18,000 species. So, and the, the dimensions are rather interesting. If you have an advanced, I'm a Naval Academy graduate, if you have some, some uh, uh, engineering behind you, you'll be startled to discover that this 50 by 30 dimension, you have a center of gravity and you have a center of buoyancy. And as that thing tips, the center of gravity and the center of buoyancy are offset. And that's what would, but that would cause it to, because they're offset, the tendency would be to balance it. You see, it would have a tendency to be stable. As long as the uh, center of buoyancy and the center of gravity are offset, the center of buoyancy is causing this to get right side. This is intrinsically stable. In its simplicity, uh, there's some genius behind it. No surprise. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station, or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.